I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. As always, we're in for a fantastic, fantastic podcast today. My guest today is Beth McMurray, who is a private practice clinician at B Collaborative in Rhode Island. And Beth and I have known each other for almost 15 years when we worked together out in California. So this has been quite the reunion for Beth and I to do the podcast together. We talk about some really, really interesting things. One thing we talk about is Beth was in the entertainment industry and we talk about the impact the entertainment industry had on her eating disorder. The other thing that we talk about is isolation versus healthy alone time. And there is quite a distinction. Healthy alone time is when at the end of the day or before you start your day, you are with your own thoughts, you're reflective, you're powering down, you're quieting down your nervous system, you're having quiet conversation with somebody. That's healthy alone time. When you're in isolation, eating disorder thoughts arise, eating disorder behaviors arise, depression arises, self-harm can happen. I'm going to encourage each of you to take a step back and try to assess, are you using healthy alone time to re-energize or are you isolating to engage in your eating disorder? Because as I just said, really, really big difference. The last thing that I want to talk about we talk about an assignment that we both use with clients that we got from Carolyn Costin, and it's called, How is my relationship with food like my relationship with people? It is a great journaling assignment. Basically, are you restricting food and restricting people in your life? Are you binging on food and binging on relationships in life? Are you binging on food and then rejecting it through purging? And do you do the same thing with relationships? Binge on the relationship, then push people away when they get too close. Really, really powerful assignment to see how the eating disorder 
influences and mimics other parts of our lives. All right, everyone. I think this is going to be a really fascinating episode. So I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed recording it. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. We are blessed this week with a colleague and a dear, I want to say old-time friend, but I don't know how that sounds, Beth McMurray. Beth, welcome to the episode. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. I really feel honored. Thank you so much. I am very honored for you to be a guest on the podcast. Um, So listeners know Beth and I have known each other for about 15 years. We worked together in Los Angeles and we have just been reunited. Beth is now in Rhode Island at a place where I do some work as well. So Beth and I are in this wonderful place of reconnecting. So it is just fantastic. Beth, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I am um, currently working in Providence and I am doing pretty exclusively uh, outpatient therapy, individual outpatient therapy. And I see families and couples as well. Um, not only strictly eating disorders, uh, but that is my primary focus. I'm a certified eating disorder specialist, and that's what I felt drawn to do as a therapist, and I'm very happy doing it. It's, I love it. I really love the work. It's very important to me. Yeah. Yeah. For both of us, you and I, I think you and I very much connect on that, that level of just how important this work is. So I would love, so, um, so everyone knows I had asked Beth prior to the beginning of this podcast. I said, Beth, I want you to tell a little bit of your history. We don't normally go into, tell us about your eating disorder. What were the behaviors? Blah, 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 blah. We, I like to work, kind of work present forward or, you know, but Beth, I'd like you to tell the listeners a little bit about your background because it did lead into your eating disorder and it was about being in the entertainment industry years ago. So can you share a little bit of that story and then say how it led you into this work? Sure, I, I would love to. Um, in my early 20s, um, I went to New York after graduating from acting school. I, uh, I went to New York and uh, I became a professional actress. And it was right about the same time that I developed an eating disorder. Specifically, it was bulimia. Um, and I remember the day it started. I remember what was going through my head. And for the 10 or 15 years that I lived in New York, my eating disorder was my constant companion uh, until it almost killed me. Um, it was rough being in, you know, being a performer and having to be very body conscious. Although I wasn't actively acting out in my eating disorder as a kid or even as a teen, uh, I, I never liked my body. I always hated my body. You know, there was always something that could be fixed. 
but it really wasn't until I felt basically out of control. I felt like I was out of my element. I had really suffered from imposter syndrome, like, oh my God, they're going to find me out. You know, they are going to just, it's like the emperor's new clothes or whatever. Um, that never happened, weirdly. I, and uh, my first, the first job I got was a Broadway show. And uh, I was enormously um, fortunate for that to happen. Uh, and that was followed by uh, a work on a soap opera and, uh, you know, various stage and television roles. All that to say, as my eating disorder progressed, I became more and more body conscious. I was told at one point by a producer that if I didn't lose 10 pounds, that he was going to fire me. Um, I thought in some weird way that I was controlling, you know, my weight, which of course is not the case with bulimia. Um, and I developed a, a really nifty exercise addiction and laxative abuse to go along with that, all in the hopes that I would, you know, develop into this ideal that I had of myself, of what an actress should look like, what a young actress should look like. Uh, it was very, very, very painful. And, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't alone. Even though I thought that I had invented this as a kind of a nifty way to eat whatever I wanted, there were others like me uh, and um, in the entertainment industry. So, um, you know, all, all that, that, that's a very long story and uh, I don't really want to focus on that, but it was, it was heartbreaking. And I felt, you know, really, really worthless that it became all about looks. It became all about my body. It was, you know, I was constantly comparing myself with other people and knew that I had to get out of that. Uh, I was also at the time in a very toxic relationship. And interestingly enough, uh, that toxic relationship really mirrored my toxic relationship with food. And I think the duration of my eating disorder was the duration of that relationship and once I found a therapist and was able to kind of move myself out of that relationship my relationship with food I said relationship a whole lot here my relationship yeah. with so good got a lot better this is all about relationships all about relationships so um the rest is kind of history I did recover completely I don't know how far you want me to go with that but um I, I think there's two things that you just said that I want to point out, which is uh, you and I have both worked for Carolyn Costin, and we have used her book in a lot of our, our sessions, The Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder. And one of the assignments that we give to clients is, how is my relationship like food no, I'm sorry. How is my relationship with food like my relationship with others? And that's what that reminded me of when you said your relationship, your toxic partner relationship mimicked the eating disorder. I don't know if there's anything you want to expand on that without, you don't have to go into the personal details of your relationship, but just the concept of people being like, how is my relationship with food like my relationship with others? Well, you know, it's that there's this whole debate and Carolyn mentions it in the eight keys. It's like, um, 
it, the food is not, it's really not about the food. And then there's a chapter, it really is about the food. But the part where it's really not about the food, uh, that's been the most valuable. It was, it was so uh, surprising to me to learn that if I worked on my relationships with people, uh, and I didn't realize this until hindsight, honestly, but when I worked on my relationships with people, which were really bringing me down, and I was like, you know, acting out on my behaviors at this other person, you know. So if I if I work on that relationship and work on shoring up myself, my self esteem, my identity, that that would be kind of an antidote to my eating disorder. So in the, in that way, I think an exploration of our our all of our relationships is is incredibly important. You know, whether it's uh, in our families of origin, or romantic relationship, or friendships, uh, and and you know later I'll I can talk about uh, you know the most important things that that I have learned, and one of them is setting boundaries, and that's what had to happen. I had to set boundaries in my relationship in order to move out of them. There's so many places where I want to go right now that I'm sort of like, <laughs> I'm feeling all over the place, but I, I swear I can bring it in. There's one other thing that you said that I thought was very important and I want to point it out, which is, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said something to the point, the deeper I was in my eating disorder, the more dissatisfied I was with my body. Yes. Is there anything you can say about that? Or I could talk about that for hours. So <laughs> you have nothing to say i'm sure i could say something yeah it's it was this constant battle to shift and to change things about my body and i had like three or four different practices i was engaging in none of them were working none of them were making they were all making me sick in one way or another i'm not going to go into that but it was each one of them was making me really sick so at the same time i thought you know, I was doing this great thing for my physique or the way I looked. My face was bloated. My, my, my glands were swollen. My body was swollen. Um, I was lightheaded. I wound up in the hospital. You know, I mean, all of these things were just the body, the system was breaking down. And it was so ironic. Here I was trying to, you know, put a mask all over my body. And it wasn't working because I was dying from the inside out. Yeah, that's a, that's unfortunately a great way of putting it. So, given given the industry that you were in, the relationship you were in, um, was there a defining moment in the recovery process where you and and that's that's sort of a loaded question because I know for me there were like a thousand defining moments, right? There's never just one. But was there something that shifted your thought process? Well, I can tell you when I realized I was fully recovered. Yeah. That was, uh, I guess, a couple of years into my recovery. And I realized a lot of these things in hindsight, of course, you know. Um, I had a lot of, you know, like I talked about, I, I engaged in a lot of vain attempts to alter my body in some way. And it, the most surprising thing for me is that, uh, you know, I realized when I stopped all these behaviors for a long period of time, my body actually became the body I wanted with no help from me. 
I mean, I didn't do anything to make that happen. And it was just the biggest irony. But a couple of years into my recovery, I remember I was, I was at a function and I, I thought about this later in the day, but at the time, I, somebody offered me a piece of cake. And I took the piece of cake. I had some of it. I left some on the plate and I walked away. And later on in the day, I was reflecting on this event and I went, oh my God, I, I ate a piece of cake and I, there were no urges to eat the whole cake. And it, I had forgotten about the cake. The cake was no longer an issue. The cake I, was at the party, you know, I, I didn't bring it home with me. And that, that was, I, I wept. I mean, I, you know, not to be dramatic, but I sat down and I cried because that, that was a, a time when I realized this is over. This is over. You don't have to suffer like this anymore. You can eat what you want. It's okay. You know, the thing that's, that's so powerful, I think, about eating disorders is it's not about what eating disorder you struggle with because whether it's anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, whatever it is, somebody in an eating disorder mind is going to ruminate about that cake for the rest of the day. The person with anorexia is going to ruminate about the half a piece of cake that they ate. The person with bulimia or binge eating disorder is going to ruminate about eating more of the cake. Or by the way, I know for me in my anorexia, I ruminated not only about the cake that I ate, but actually wanting to eat more cake, not allowing myself to. So it's so powerful when you have these moments, again, regardless of what the disorder was, the food did not have power over the event and the day. Exactly. Exactly. That was a true moment of freedom for me because I'm telling you, it was years of feeling, feeling as if I'd been kidnapped by a group of terrorists. And the torture involved uh, their suggestions well, if you, if you drink only carrot juice, you'll be fine, you know? Or if you, you know, adhere to this macrobiotic diet or something else, you'll be fine. So I would go down all of these different routes in vain, and there was no escape. I couldn't escape. And the most interesting thing is you weren't even in danger. You were trying to escape what? Yourself that's what's the most powerful is you're you when I say you I'm also referencing myself and clients that I'm working with are frantic about this escape and there's nobody following you you're not in danger I also want to point out there are times when people are in danger but the eating disorder that they think is going to protect them is not protecting them. So I don't want to invalidate somebody that is using it as a way of, of, of self-protection and whatnot, but that's not the way to protect yourself. Right. And at the time, I felt 
is so complicated, this relationship with your eating disorder. I felt without it, I would be so unsafe. And with it, I was so unsafe, which I knew in the back of my mind, but in the front of my mind, I was like eating disorder all the way. And the thought of giving it up was absolutely terrifying because I didn't know. And of course I see this with my clients. I didn't know what was going to be left. You know, I didn't know who was going to be left or if there was even a me. And that was uh, startling, a startling revelation that I had lost myself. I completely lost myself along the way in service to this thing that was literally trying to kill me. And I see that with my, with my clients all the time. And, you know, that's why I think having gone through this, it's like, well, that's another question, isn't it? Having gone through this myself, I think that it's uh, very much an identity issue in so many ways because we completely lose touch with who and what we love, uh, what we value, the things that are important to us. They all just go by the wayside. So that's part of this is, is discovering all or rediscovering all of that. Yeah. I know for myself, it was learning to be okay with what I valued and what I loved. I think when I was a very young child, I had a lot of passions and a lot of energy. And I think either I was embarrassed of them, I was ashamed of them. And I don't know if it was because I was made fun of. It's because it's not what I was seeing from my peers. And so I abandoned all those things when I got to my eating disorder to fit in. And coming back to those things, if you knew me as a child and you know me now, <laughs> I'm pretty much the same. It was the eating disorder part of me that was just muted. And, but I was, I was afraid of all that I was when I was younger, which is one of the reasons that my eating disorder came around. Now I'm back to my obnoxious, crazy self and I embrace it. <laughs> And here I am. <laughs> you, you bring up a really good point. I think an awful lot of people who show up for, you know, with an eating disorder, who walk through the door seeking treatment, have felt a little bit nutty or a little bit like they didn't fit in, you know, just didn't fit in. I did not walk the straight and narrow, you know. Uh, I, was a, I was a little, you know, kind of left of center. I, I was out there. And I kept trying to put myself in this little box, you know, and um, that just wasn't working for me. So when I found this, it was like, oh, great. Here's a way to fit in. This is a way to do it. But again, my question, and forgive me for going back to the entertainment industry. I know that I have a lot of clients or a few clients that are either currently in the entertainment industry or in school for theater arts. And they're struggling with how their body is part of their craft and how they are seen. So my question is, is what motivated you? How did you start that transition? It may have been, Beth, 
that you had to leave the entertainment industry and that, so what was it for you? Hmm. Okay, this is, it, it gets a little complicated because my motivation when I was deeply in the eating, eating disorder, I knew that you know if this kept going, I was either gonna get very, very sick or it was gonna kill me. Um, acting, that I, acting, which I felt completely passionate about. I loved acting. Oh my God, I loved being on a stage. I loved rehearsal. I loved everything about it, everything about it. But as soon as I got into the industry, television, you know, where it became more commercial and I felt that need to keep up, to fit in, I suddenly lost myself and I lost my drive and I lost my passion for what I loved. I wasn't staying focused on what got me started in that industry in the first place. So it, it again, it's about, it was about losing myself. Somewhere along the line, even though I had ended this toxic relationship and there, was, there were no prospects waiting in the wings, my motivation to recover was that I desperately wanted to have children. I really, really wanted to have kids. And I knew that that was just not going to happen if I, if I were to keep going the way I was going. So it's a, it's a long answer to a very, very complicated question. I think if somebody asked me today to go, you know, would you like to be in this play in community theater? I would, I would jump at the chance to do that. But the, I found show business itself and I later moved to LA. So that became more complicated. Um, was very intimidating for somebody with really low self-esteem. So I would say, you know, to anybody in that, in that profession, you work on yourself, you develop, you have to develop a really thick skin. And how do you do that with a lot of therapy, you know, with a lot of therapy and uh, hopefully, you know, you won't fall into the, the trap that I fell into at the time. Don't, don't forget this was, Oh my gosh. This was the early 70s. I didn't know what this was. I didn't know it had a name. I didn't know if there was treatment. I, it never crossed my mind. And I never told anybody. I never told a doctor, even when I had to be hospitalized for fluids. They're like, how did this happen? What happened? I don't know. I don't know, I can't imagine. I fainted on stage. I mean, it was, not good, not good, but I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to go. Where I want to pull, pull it out now, pull the lens out, because this, what you said can now be applied to anybody, which is you lost your passion and you lost your energy and you lost your drive for acting. And part of it is because all your attention, energy, and drive were going towards your eating disorder. And we all lose our energy, attention, and drive when we're in our eating disorder. I, I often say, you know, when I give talks at colleges, I don't remember college at all. I have no memory of college. I have no college friends. I have no college memories. And it isn't because I was partying. It's because I was in my eating disorder. I couldn't concentrate. I could barely make it through my classes to then go home and sort of collapse into my eating disorder. So it takes you out of 
everything. And then ironically, if it's something like say work, you think, why am I not performing well? I need to do better, which ends up being taken out on your eating disorder, right? It's, it's such a cycle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was unfortunate timing. You know, I think that, uh, well, obviously there are so many avenues available for help now. Thank God that people, I mean, nobody should have to suffer through this. Nobody, not alone, you know? Yes, I do. I do. I do. I do. You know, and it's interesting because clients often say to me like, well, you didn't go to treatment, Karen. So why, why do I need treatment? And I say, God, I wish it was available. What I went through was grueling, grueling doing it on my own. I don't wish that upon anyone, anyone. How do you navigate through real life issues now? Because by the way, when you were saying you were in a toxic relationship, toxic relationships still last as a recovered person, jobs as a recovered person, like things get complicated. How do you navigate through life? Life happens. Life is in session. Or as John Lennon said, life is what happens when you, you're making other plans, right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, nobody, nobody ever told me that. Oh, okay. So, you know, we, we've all got our hot button issues. Mine was, as I already mentioned, low self-esteem and, and, and really high anxiety, really high anxiety. So the eating disorder provided, you know, what I thought was a stress reliever. Um, little did I know at the time that it was going to increase my stress level a thousandfold. You know, it wasn't until I was able to stop those behaviors that I began to relax. So um, I learned to meditate, number one. I, uh, you know, did everything that I could possibly do. I went to a, I, I got a, I had a, a guru. I went to an ashram in South Fallsburg, New York, and sat up there every weekend and learned to meditate. Um, I did yoga. I developed a yoga practice. And, you know, do I do that all the time, every day? No, I'm human. You know, sometimes I get very rebellious and I, I, and I want to like sit in my anxiety, you know. <laughs> you rebel, you. I'm going to, I'm just going to sit here and be anxious, you know. My, my shoulders are up around my ears. And, okay, calm down. Those have been, well, two of the most uh, important coping skills for me. I knew I had to learn to calm down, learning to breathe, uh, very basic learning to breathe. I often talk to myself. I can get very excited and not always in a good way. I can go from zero to 60, like in a, in a hot second. And I have a hard time, anybody who knows me, I have a hard time not saying something. If, if I'm like feeling it, I'm like, ah, what I needed to learn though, is sometimes speaking in the moment is not in my best interest. I need to take a moment, think about it, breathe on it, sometimes even sleep on it. 
then talk about it because sometimes my emotions do take over and that's not that has not always worked in my best interest so i learned how to talk to myself and say to myself just take a second put this in perspective take a few breaths so that that has been one of my coping skills and i often talk out loud to myself so people are watching me <laughs> I, you know, in that sense, you and I are two peas in a pod. Um, I talk to myself constantly. I have to. And I have, oh my gosh, I really have to watch what I say. And like you, I have to take a moment. I have to take a time out because it can be very impulsive. And you know, sometimes I say things and, and I'm like, what did you say? You know, you just want to eat your words. You want to take them back. That's why I had to get off Facebook. I mean, I'm just like, no, I can't do this. I really can't do this. Um, but, you know, one of the things, ironically, we're, we're in this time of COVID, which is, you know, it's awful on so many levels. But one of the things I learned is that I, I'm an isolator. I was an only child. So isolation comes easily to me. Um, and I also, I learned that it was, it's the worst thing in the world for me. And it was in my, in my eating disorder. Um, I need to move toward people, not away from people. Um, so right now I'm doing that with phone calls and I'm doing that, you know, through Zoom chats and, you know, whatever I have to do. But if I'm feeling squirrely, I need to pick up the phone and I need to call somebody. Uh, you know, when my anxiety gets really bad, I, um, even though, you know, I see a therapist, I, I am a therapist, I, you know, I, I know what to do. I need people. I really need people. And that was a revelation to me. Because I thought I wasn't hurting anybody. You know, I'm just hurting myself. I'm just sitting in here by myself. I think there's a, there's a big difference between isolating and needing alone time. And that, that's the def that for me is what defines when people are going into either darkness or light. So, you know, I actually, I, I'm kind of a homebody. I love my home. I, I like my own company. Obviously, I think I'm funny because I can't stop laughing at myself today. <laughs> I, I like the way I sing and dance when I'm alone. I mean, I'm a fun person. <laughs> Who needs people? So that's me enjoying my alone time. It's different though, if I'm starting to feel myself become depressed, anxious, I'm now avoiding phone calls. I'm not returning texts. I'm not returning emails. I'm not leaving my, my home. Like that's different. And I think it's important for people to know when they're going into the line of isolation because the eating disorder loves isolation. It thrives in isolation. So I, I think that that's, you know, that's something that I always find is, and people have said to me, like, you know, I, you know, is there anything wrong with me? Like I, I, I isolate, I like to be alone. And I said, well, wait a minute, let's talk about the difference. Do you enjoy your alone time or is it isolation? Very, very different. I need to recharge and I do it by myself. 
No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do as well. And you're right. Thank you for pointing that out. There's a huge difference between alone time and isolation. I'm, I'm talking about the isolation that has me thinking toxic thoughts and, and you know, literally making myself depressed. It's like I, I need somebody to, to help me with that. You know, and, I, and I'm, um, there was a time that I wouldn't do that. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to bother anybody. No, no, that's what I would do for somebody else. And I know that my, my good friends would be there for me as well. Do you feel, because you and I have both been very fortunate to work with clinicians who have been recovered and you and I have worked with clinicians who have never had an eating disorder and they are fantastic. Do you feel there's a benefit working with a recovered clinician as opposed to someone who's never had one? I do. And I, and I also want to say, you know, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that, that somebody has to be recovered to do this work. Like you said, I mean, I've worked with brilliant therapists who, who get this. I mean, they really get it and they have so much empathy. Um, and uh, as I mentioned to you, I think last week, uh, I had someone come to me, a client who said, I found this podcast and I listened to it and it, it, it's changing my life because I feel like somebody gets me that they're just not paying, you know, lip service, that they really understand that they've walked in my shoes. And, you know, I, uh, so, you know, thank you for even thinking about doing this, for conceiving of this podcast. I think it's very important for people to know that, you know, not only somebody's walked in their shoes, but somebody can not only survive this, but they can become a professional, that they can go out and hang up their shingle so that they can be there for somebody else in a professional capacity. You know, that there is life after an eating disorder and it can be a brilliant life, you know, and it, it, it does put you in a position where you can then go out and help others. So, yeah, I feel completely blessed. I think sometimes what I drop into and maybe one of the reasons why I started the podcast series is I have never felt lonelier in my life than when I was in my eating disorder. I'd never felt more misunderstood. I never miss, I never, I, I could be in a room with 50 people and just feel completely alone. I didn't think anyone understood my thought process, my language. I felt like there was something so innately wrong with me and I didn't understand life. And for me to be on the other side now is the most powerful thing I've ever been through in my entire life. And it's things like that, that I want somebody who feels alone to hear these episodes and say, oh, thank God I'm not alone. That email meant a lot. Thank you for sending it to me. Well. Um... I feel like you should know. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. Definitely having a positive effect. And it's very, very, very much appreciated. So thank you. I also thought it was important for us to get the message out that, first of all, full recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. 
that full recovery is complicated. I think there's enough podcasts out there talking about eating disorders or talking about mental health from a perspective of still in the struggle. And I think it's important to hear from people on the other side. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to do a podcast where I was like, tell me exactly how your eating disorder was. Tell me exactly what went into your eating disorder. We don't need that. We're inundated with messages like that. Yeah, we are. Um, We definitely are. I I just want to say something about uh, there's often a comparison to substance abuse, you know, that somehow this is an addiction. And granted, there, you know, neurologically, there, there, are, there are certain triggers in the brain that, that could look like an addiction, can certainly feel like an addiction, but we have to eat to live. We don't have to pick up a drink. We don't have to pick up a drug. We have to eat to live. So we have to have this relationship. And if we can improve or even cure our relationship with food, then we are fully recovered. We're not in recovery. We're fully recovered. And I I think that's an important distinction to make. And yeah, it's possible. And everybody, you know, that that I have worked with and people on your podcast uh, can, you know, attest to that, that yes, possible. And I used to think everybody else can recover but me. Uh, They can do it. I can't. I'm that unicorn that just can't do it. And that's not true. Anybody anybody can. It's not easy. Everybody's path is different, but anybody could do it. Is there a moment in your life now that we're reflecting on being fully recovered? Is there a memorable moment in your life that you've experienced that if you were not in your eating disorder, no, I'm sorry, let me take a step back. If you were in your eating disorder, you would have never been able to have that experience. Yeah, there's kind of three. Go for it. <laughs> I love it. Um, the first two are the birth of my two daughters. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah. You know, my the first one was tough because uh, I I held on to that exercise addiction a little bit too long. I mean, the eating disorder behaviors were kind of, they were gone, and I didn't get that that my exercise addiction could actually impair um, part of the birth and delivery. Yeah. Uh, And it did somewhat, but uh, there she was finally holding those girls and they're almost two years apart and holding them in my arms was, Oh my God, I can't even, you know, I can't even describe it. This would, I would be, they would not be here. They would not be here. I probably would not have been able to conceive, let alone give birth. And they are miracles, absolute miracles in my life. And uh, no, with an eating disorder, they would not have been here. Absolutely. Um, You know, the third thing, I worked for the past 11 years in a treatment center in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, we would have women come back after a period of time, after they'd found a partner, they'd maybe gotten married, they'd have babies, and they would bring those babies back to the clinic. 
the whole staff would just drop everything. They would light up, they'd run out to greet them, hold these babies. This is, this is such a gift of recovery. And this would not have been possible, you know, if they were to hold onto this eating disorder. So yeah, those are the most memorable moments for me. It's giving new life that out of this horrible illness, you know, dangerous, scarring illness can come such beautiful life. And uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's a lot. Is that it? Just those those three powerful, beautiful new life, new life. Beth, you are amazing. I I am so I've I've said this on other episodes before. I am so lucky. I I get to do this and hear from all these beautiful wise people that you know. You help me. You help me. I I feel like I learn every time I do another episode. So unfortunately, we're kind of going to have to start bringing it to an end or a close. Is there anything that I didn't ask or that you wanted to, to um, expand on? Anything else that you want to say before we start closing up? Um, yeah. I mean, to people who are, who are in recovery, um, it often asks me, you know, what's the most important thing? And I think for me, at least in my practice, is teaching people what I learned, which is to set boundaries with others. Uh, and it, it can often feel um, really scary, especially if you're trying to set boundaries in your family of origin. Uh, they can get really angry and it can feel to them like abandonment because what we know about families is that they really enjoy homeostasis. They don't like change. So, you know, when one person changes, eh, it upsets the apple cart, right? And it takes so much courage to set those boundaries. And then expanding that pool from the family of origin outward into the workplace, into your friendships, setting those boundaries. It's like, I need to know where I end and you begin because I need to maintain my sense of self in order to be in this recovery and to have a joyous life. So that is, that's the most important thing I think I learned. I'm so glad you shared this before we ended. Fantastic. So as you all know, I do have a question to ask at the end of every episode. And so Beth, if you could live in another time period, but stay in the same place you live now, when would you want to live? 1630. Oh, exactly. Can you say <laughs> more about that? In the 16th, yeah, I'm so excited to answer this because I've just come home after what, 35, 40 years, 40 years, something like that back home in Rhode Island and um, in, in the 1630s, Anne Hutchinson, who was a Puritan, was banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony because she was preaching to women as well. <gasps> I know, shameful. Oh. She, she just steamrolled over all the usual gender roles and rules. And she came to Aquidneck Island, which is Middletown, Portsmouth and, and um, Newport. And she started preaching here. And she opened the door to freedom 
for re, of religion for all people. And Newport has the oldest synagogue in our country. Um, the Quakers were welcomed in. This woman was incredible. Um, I think I would have been one of her band of followers. And yeah, I would like that. I can picture that, Beth. Yeah, absolutely. The two of you arm in arm, <laughs> using your voice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I, and I love you. I love you. And this has just been so wonderful. Um, Beth, I can't thank you enough for being a guest. Oh, thank you, Karen. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Beyond my pleasure. So, all right, everyone. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites. Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www dot karen lewis edc.com forward slash podcast you can subscribe to future shows by searching recovery bites on apple Podcasts, spotify and youtube all right everybody be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week